everyone. I'm Jen Garrett and welcome to the Move the Ball podcast. On this podcast, we are going to talk about how to succeed in business and in life by putting winning strategies into practice to help you advance faster. So if you're looking to move forward and reach that next level of greatness, then you are in the right place. Now get ready. Let's suit up, show up and move the ball. Hey everyone, Jen Garrett here. It's so great to be back with you on another episode of Move the Ball. Today, inside the huddle with us and ready to help us move the ball is Justin Brooks. Justin is the director and co-founder of the California Innocence Project and a tenured professor of law at California Western School of Law in San Diego. Over the course of his career, Justin has served as counsel on many high-profile criminal cases, and he has exonerated 30 innocent people, including former NFL player Brian Banks which we will talk about more in the show as well as some other cases that Justin's worked on. Justin has been recognized several times by the Los Angeles Daily Journal as one of the top 100 lawyers in California. And in 2010 and 2012, California Lawyer Magazine honored him with the Lawyer of the Year Award. Wow, Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you with us. You and I initially connected because of the Brian Banks case, but you've done some amazing work in your legal career to really move the ball and make an impact in the lives of others. And I'm just so honored to have you here with me today on the show. I mean, move the ball is not just about moving the ball in your own life and being successful, but making a difference in the lives of other people. And that's what you do each and every day. So again, I'm glad to have you with us today. Thank you. So let's start out talking about your journey to being an attorney. At what point did you decide that you wanted to go to law school and to uh, have a career in the profession of law? Well, when I was a child, my father had a number of failed businesses, and it always seemed that the lawyers did okay with those. (laughs) He he filed for bankruptcy a few times. You know, he really struggled. And I, I saw that sort of image on TV and movies and And being a lawyer seemed like something like that was a good job to do. So I actually got a business degree in undergrad, and I went to law school to be a corporate lawyer. And then my first year of law school, my criminal law professor took us out to a prison, and it just completely changed the direction of my life. I I started, I'd never been in a prison. I'd never met inmates. I'd never thought about a career in criminal law. And I started getting involved in the prisons. I started actually teaching in the prison. Um, And then after law school, I got a fellowship at Georgetown Law School to run a prison clinic. And I started every day working in the prisons, teaching inmates, helping them out with their parole and seeing just all the struggles and and all the difficulty that they faced. And and at that time, Washington, D.C. was the murder capital of the world. You just saw so many mostly young black men just locked up for the rest of their lives and uh, it just changed my view on the world, and and it led to my career of freeing innocent people from prison. And you met a man named Rick Rowe when you were at Georgetown, and you said that he's changed your life and thinking as a lawyer. And something that you said that I really liked, you said, it's not about the individual career we make for ourselves. It's how big an impact we can make on the system and on the community, which, you know, for me, it's the biggest reason why I left my corporate career behind to focus on the Move the Ball brand, why I have this podcast. It's really to make a difference and impact uh, other people and their lives. So you were one of the co-founders of the California Innocence Project back in 1999. Uh, Tell us what the mission of the project was and and how you started that journey. 
So I was teaching law school in Michigan after I was at Georgetown. I, I moved to Michigan and was teaching law school there. And um, I heard about this case of Marilyn Malero. And Marilyn was this 21-year-old who was sentenced to death in Chicago. And the article that I read about the case said that she was sentenced to death on a plea bargain. And I just thought, how could anybody be sentenced to death on a plea bargain? And so I actually grew up in Puerto Rico, went to high school down there, and Marilyn was Puerto Rican. And um, I went and met with her and spoke with her about her case and just said, you know, how are you sitting on death row on a plea bargain? And it, it ended up that she just had this terrible lawyer who didn't investigate her case, told her the best way for her to go is to plead it out. And she ends up getting the death penalty. So I started working on her case investigating it. And I found out she was factually innocent. Uh, there was another woman who'd committed the crime. She was there at the crime scene, but was not the killer. I started working on the case with students. I got up in front of my class and I told them about the case and these students volunteered to work on it with me. So we sat around my kitchen table and worked on briefs and went through the police reports and did the investigation. And what I realized doing that work was that you know, first of all, there were innocent people in prison who needed help, like Marilyn. And second, that you could work on these cases with students, and it was the best way to train them to be great lawyers. Um, you can't really teach skills in a classroom. You can't lecture to someone about skills, and at the end of your lecture, they know how to do it. And whether that's whether you're talking about being a plumber, talking about being a doctor, talking about a lawyer, it's a skill. And so you have to practice it. And by going to the crime scenes with the students, interviewing witnesses with the students, doing all the groundwork, they, they learned how to do it. So that case inspired me to start the California Innocence Project with the goal of getting innocent people out of prison, but doing it while I'm training law students. And the, it's a great symmetry because those students provide this tremendous resource of working for free doing thousands of hours that, and our clients have no money, but at the same time, they're getting something out of it, which is the training. So that was my inspiration for doing it. That was the mission when I started it in 1999. And that's still what we're doing today. And you guys get over 2000 potential cases each year that you review. Tell us some of the things that you're looking for when you're trying to decide what cases do you take on? Yeah, that's the hardest part of the work. And I could tell you that we're brilliant at it and perfect at it, but that would be a lie. You know, in the last 20 years, we've learned a lot about the causes of wrongful conviction. We know now that bad identifications are the leading cause. We know that snitches, you know, informants and cases often give false information. We know that there's problems with confessions and how they're obtained. So we've learned a lot in terms of what to look for in a case, in terms of what we've seen in other cases. But still, it's a bit of a smell test, and you don't really know someone's innocent until you find strong evidence of their innocence. And that's the toughest part of the project. You know, my students will go out and meet with a client, and they'll come back and say, I really think this person's innocent. And I'll say, you know, it doesn't really matter what we think. It's about what we can prove. And so it's very sad, but every single day we turn down cases where people very well might likely be innocent. But since we have the burden of proof, it's not trial. At trial, the prosecution's got to prove their case. This is post-conviction, and we have to prove innocence to get them out. So that those 2,000 requests for help very quickly turn into, 
you know, a couple of hundred cases with possibilities. And then from those couple of hundred, we get down to in the tens of ones where we could really help someone. And if we're lucky, we get to walk a few people out of prison every year. And recently we've been able to do that. But, you know, the thousands become hundreds, become tens, become a few. And it's because, you know, the evidence just isn't there. We know it's the tip of the iceberg. We know there's many more innocent people in prison. And that's a sad part of our work. Sure. And talk to us about the first case where you had a client exonerated. So Marilyn was your inspiration for the California Innocence Project, but she it took many, many years, a couple decades, right, before she was actually released. But talk to us about that very first case where you had a client exonerated. Walk us through the situation and kind of how that felt for you and your team. Yeah. So the first exoneration for the California Innocence Project was a guy named Jason Kendall. Um, we, when I just started the project, uh, a lawyer reached out to me to work on the case with him. And this was a guy who was convicted of robbing an office depot. The, uh, the officer investigating the case believed it was an inside job because he concluded that the robber knew who the manager was. And the robber wore a mask, came in to the office depot, found the manager, and committed the robbery. Now, the problem with that conclusion is it's not very hard to know who the manager is of an office depot. You know, that's the person in the red vest. Everyone else has a blue vest on. But regardless, this is what I often see in criminal cases is an officer will come to some conclusion initially, and then the whole investigation will go from that and will go on the wrong track. And in Jason's case, what happens is the officer concludes it's an inside job. So he immediately looks for anyone in the store who had a criminal record. And Jason had a prior drug charge. And then he went around and just literally asked the other employees, did the robber sound like Jason? And Jason ends up getting convicted on testimony where a woman said, yeah, it sounded like Jason. And this was an absolutely terrible identification case. But fortunately, there was a photo taken by a security camera of the robber entering the store. And we were able to calculate the height of the robber using the height of the door versus the height of the individual. And we discovered that uh, he was six inches taller than Jason. We brought the case in front of Judge Ito, who's very well known for the O.J. Simpson case. And it was not that long after the O.J. Simpson case. And Judge Ito dismissed the case. It was incredibly exciting because, you know, we've been slogging away for a couple of years just with boxes and boxes of mail trying to figure out how to handle these cases. And by having that first success, it propelled us on to keep looking for the next needle in the haystack. And that's that's really what it is. You're looking for the great case and then you got to convince a judge it's a great case. And, you know, now I've been able to walk more than 30 people out of prison and every one is, you know, one of the best days of my life. Oh, I'm sure it's just an amazing feeling to know that you're able to give someone their freedom back. It's indescribable. I, I wish every lawyer, every person could experience something like that once. It's, it's not even just giving that person their life back. It's giving that person back to their family and friends and community. Yeah, it's overwhelming. Absolutely. 
So now let's talk about Brian Banks for a few minutes. Uh, for those of you listening who aren't familiar with Brian Banks, there was a, a movie that came out in August of last year, 2019. Um, and I have to say, you know, I've watched it three or four times. It's a great movie. Encourage everyone listening to, to watch it. But talk to us about who was Brian Banks and how did you get to know him? So Brian was one of the best high school football players in the country in 11th grade. He had already verbally committed to going to USC. He had Pete Carroll coming to his practices. He was on one of the best football teams in the country, Long Beach Poly, and he was the star player. So he had his whole life ahead of him. And, you know, he was going to go to USC. People said he was going to go and play in the pros. And it all came crashing down one day when a classmate accused him of rape. Uh, Brian got arrested. He sat in a juvenile detention facility for a year awaiting trial. He was offered a number of deals that he rejected. During that time, that year, he saw his senior year of high school disappear, football disappear, his scholarship to USC. And on the day of trial, his lawyer told him, you know, we're going to lose this case. It's going to be your word against hers. You're a big black teenager. And uh, I've got a deal on the table from the DA that you should take. Because with this deal, you've got the possibility of probation. And if you don't take this deal, we're going to go to trial. We're probably going to lose. And you're looking at 44 years to life in prison. So it was literally door number one. You could go home, get your life back on track, get back to football. Door number two, you're probably going to die in prison. And he said, can I talk to my parents? They're right outside and they're, you know, they're waiting for the trial to begin. His lawyer said, nope, you got to make this decision right now. Now, imagine being in that situation, even as a lawyer sitting in that situation, if another lawyer was telling me that, it's not really a fair choice. It's like a doctor in an emergency room saying, you know, you go to an emergency room, the doctor says, you're going to be dead in 10 minutes if you don't have open heart surgery right now. What do you want to do? You know, it's, it's not a choice. So he took the deal, he pled, and the judge didn't give him probation. The judge gave him six years in prison. And so he ends up going away, and now his whole life falls apart, and everything in his life is gone. He gets out. He is trying to get his life back on track. The Wednesday after he got out of prison, like three days after he got out of prison, he actually played in a football game at a junior college. And then another shoe drops, which is California passes a law that convicted sex offenders have to wear ankle monitors, have all these restrictions on them. It made him not be able to play football anymore. It had restrictions on where he could live. It made it nearly impossible to get a job. He had to charge the monitor up twice a day. He had to sit next to a wall socket for an hour. Um, it just took his life back away from him. So out of the blue, one day, this, this girl who had claimed he raped her in high school, Facebook friend requests him and says, can we let all that stuff that happened in high school you know, can we forget about it and let bygones be bygones? And she ends up admitting on video that it never happened. Brian came to me to represent him. I had never actually represented anyone out of custody before because we have so many lifers and so many death penalty cases that we just as principal don't represent people who aren't in prison. It's just tough. It's We only have so many resources. We only have so much money to spend on cases. And if we spend it on people trying to clear their names, we, we're not spending it on somebody else. But Brian convinced me that, you know, his life really was taken away from him. And he even said to me once that 
you know, being out is actually worse than being in prison because in prison, I was surrounded by other people in the same circumstance and outside I'm now, you know, this convicted sex offender who has all these restrictions. So I took the case on. We were able to exonerate him after investigating the case and and seeing that it made no sense what the girl's story was. She claimed he dragged her down a stairwell past classroom doors that were open. And then when I interviewed her, she'd forgotten that she'd said that before and then has a whole different story. So the L.A. District Attorney actually joined us in the investigation and ultimately joined us in giving him his freedom back and exonerating him. Shortly, right after he was exonerated, I I went out of the courtroom and Brian and I stood on the steps and there were a lot of media there. And I said, NFL coaches, give me a call. This guy can still play football. Now, I had no idea whether he still could play football at the NFL level, but I knew he deserved a shot. And uh, within the next week, seven NFL coaches contacted me or Brian, and we ended up flying around the country doing tryouts. But it was just too hard for him to catch up that quickly. You know, the NFL has a lot of plays, a lot more plays than what he was dealing with as a junior in high school. And he played middle linebacker, so you've got to be able to read all the plays. So he didn't make any team. And uh, then he actually moved in with my family, and he trained for a year and ended up getting picked up by the Atlanta Falcons and played there for a short period of time. He only ended up playing a few games. But I got to tell you, one of the best nights of my life, sitting in the stadium, the Falcon Stadium, and watching him come into the game, and he immediately had a tackle. And he ended up, even though he didn't have a career in the NFL, it kind of closed the book for him and closed the circle that ultimately he was able to prove that he could walk on an NFL field and he could play. You know, it's a shame to think about that if he'd gone through the USC system. In fact, the coach at the Chargers at the time said to me, had he gone to USC and gone through that system and then gone into the NFL, he wouldn't just be playing in the NFL. He'd be the absolute top of the NFL. He'd be a potential Hall of Famer because even with 11 years later and never playing college football, he could walk on an NFL field and play. And that's just extraordinary. Well, it's a great story. I mean, I'm familiar with the story a little bit, and you and I have talked before about it. But I mean, it's just such a a tragic story, right? In the beginning, um, you had this kid that uh, was on the past, just a greatness going to USC, destined for pro. And then there was this event that happened, huge injustice uh, that happens. His freedom is taken away. And just to see, you know, it come out in a positive way through the help of you and the California Innocence Project and his determination, you know, to to get it overturned. And it's just an amazing story. And I'm glad that you uh, are here with me today to share it with those of us that are those of the listeners that are listening to the episode. So talk to us a little bit about the movie. How did the movie come to be? So there was a lot of interest in Brian's story. I mean, he's this very charismatic guy, as you said, incredibly determined. You know, he told his, his story so well on the news that a lot of people just kept getting more and more interested in it. So we'd had screenwriters reach out to us, producers, directors, and the next thing you know, Brian and I are, you know, walking the streets of Hollywood, taking on meetings with all different people who wanted to tell the story. I thought it was an important story to tell because of the plea bargain aspect. And it was sort of full circle for me with the Marilyn Malero case, because 
You know, Marilyn was sentenced to death on a plea bargain, and Brian ends up going to prison on a plea bargain, and they're both innocent. For me, the problem is that plea bargaining has become so much a part of our system that at this point, 95% of people plead guilty, and the risk of going to trial is so great that some of them are innocent. And I wanted people to see that. So for me, that was my agenda, getting this movie made. And Brian wanted the story to be told. And to Brian's tremendous credit at all the meetings, he said, I don't want this just to be a movie about football. I want this to be a movie about criminal justice and about what happened to me in terms of that. And so we had a bunch of meetings. We met a woman named Amy Bear. She had just started a new production company called Gidden Media. She really uh, loved the story. And we started working with her. We ended up getting one of the greatest directors of all time, but one of the greatest comedic directors of all time, a guy named Tom Shadiak, who directed all the Jim Carrey movies. He actually wrote Ace Ventura when he was in college, directed all those movies, directed all the Nutty Professor movies, all the God movies, Evan Almighty, all that stuff. And he was this great comedic director. He had actually got been in an accident on his bicycle and he quit Hollywood and he moved to Memphis and started doing charitable work down there. And he heard about Brian's story and wanted to come back to Hollywood and make it. So that was an incredible sub story that was going on through all this. Uh, That became a great thing too, because halfway through production, we lost one of our actors who got sick and, uh, Tom, because he had directed Morgan Freeman, was able to call Morgan Freeman up and get him to come sub in. And that's how Morgan Freeman ends up in the movie. It was quite a crazy journey. It took us eight years to get the movie made. And along the way, everybody was telling me, you'll never get a movie made. No movies are ever made unless they're superhero movies and big budgets from the studios and all that. But we kept at it and we had the right team together. And we got it made. And it ended up in theaters in August. Um, I'm very proud of the movie. It's incredibly accurate. It's now on Hulu in the United States. And it's on Netflix, um, most places around the world. Yeah, it's an important story that needs to be told. Well, it's a fantastic movie. I mentioned earlier, I've watched it a number of of times. And it, you know, when I first saw the movie and the the trailer, it was about football. I was like, oh, it's a football movie. Let me watch. You know, I want to watch it because of the football aspect. And that's not the reason why I watched the movie over and over. It really was about the injustice that happened to Brian. I mean, I enjoyed the football elements to it, but but it was really about, you know, you mentioned the plea bargain. And uh, yeah, there are so many people that plea because the risk is too great to go to trial. So it's not because they're guilty and they're pl- taking a plea to get a lesser sentence. They don't want to run the risk. So they'll take the lesser of the two. And so it's a fantastic movie to everyone listening. I highly, highly encourage you to to watch it. And I share all the time with people about the movie. And I tell them it's not just about football, you know, watch it for these other elements. And so it's a powerful movie. Brian has an amazing story. You and and your team have done great work through it and through the other uh, cases that you're doing with the California Innocence Project. So again, I appreciate everything that you're, you're doing to really make an impact in the community, in society and, and help giving people their freedom, their life back, and also giving them back to their families. Thank you. I appreciate that. So let's talk about a couple other cases. So first, let's talk about the California 12. You guys did this California 12 Innocence March many years back. Talk to us a little bit about what that was and who those 12 people represented. Sure. So 
The governor of every state has the power of clemency to release anyone they want from prison. And the president of the United States has the power to release anyone he or she wants from federal prison. It's, it's written into the constitutions of the states. It's written into the federal constitution. It comes from England. We brought this power over. It used to be called the Queen's Prerogative in Britain, where the Queen could also commute people. And so I had these 12 cases that I'd been banging my head against the wall about for a number of years. And I thought, you know, I'm going to file 12 clemency petitions on their behalf with the governor and hope that the governor can be the safety valve, because these are very powerful cases, very powerful stories. 12 totally separate people, different backgrounds, different crimes, different parts of the states, black people, white people, Latino people, men, women, old, young. It's a real cross-section of, of our clients. But then I was thinking, you know, how am I going to get the governor's attention? Because California is the size of a country, and getting the governor's attention is not easy. So I came up with this stupid idea that I would walk the clemency petitions from my office in San Diego to the governor's office in Sacramento to get the governor's attention. And along the way, do speaking events, talk to media, try really drum up some real you know, attention as to why is this law professor walking 700 miles to, uh, to bring these clemency petitions to Sacramento. I told my staff about my idea, kind of half thinking they'd try to talk me out of it. And then they said, oh, that's a great idea, boss. You should definitely do that. So then I had to do it. And then actually two of them, Alyssa Birakal and Mike Samanchik, they said they'd do it with me. So the three of us walked from San Diego. We actually thought it was only going to be 500 and some miles. But as we got into it, it was pretty much impossible to do it in anything under 700 miles if you want to walk every inch of it. And uh, you can't really, you can't always take the shortest route because it would be through the desert where you die of heat stroke or you'd be on a major highway. It took 50 days. It was the hardest thing I've ever done, but it felt at the end like the best thing I'd ever done. We had family members of people we got out of prison come out with us. We had people we got out of prison come out with us. Brian Banks came and walked with us. He actually flew back from the Atlanta Falcons and training camp to walk with us. It was just this life-changing experience. We got to Sacramento we, the, because of the media attention on it. We got a meeting with the governor's staff to present all the cases. I felt good about it. And then nothing happened. Nothing happened for years. The, all the staff that we met with had left the governor's office shortly thereafter I tried to get Jerry Brown's attention every chance I could. I tweeted to him every single morning. I tweeted to his wife. I tweeted to his dog. (laughs) I did everything I could in a sort of Michael Moore fashion. And finally, before he left office, he reduced a couple of our client sentences um, that allowed us to get them out on parole. But he didn't do a lot. Gavin Newsom, on the other hand, has done a lot. And we now have released all but two of the original California 12. And there's one that we, we, we're not representing anymore. Um, she's going through a parole process with her case. And so there's just one other case left of the 12 that we're advocating for. So it, it's been a tremendous success. Some of those we got out through litigation while we were waiting on the governor. But Governor Newsom has taken action on five of the cases. 
So uh, ultimately, I feel good about it. It was a crazy idea. It was sort of life-changing experience. But that's, that's what this work is. It's not just about being a lawyer. It's about being an advocate in the broadest sense. And we're part of a movement. You know, when, when I started the project 20 years ago, there were only four or five people in the world doing this kind of work. There were just a handful of projects. And now we have more than 60 projects in the United States. I oversee and I've helped start 25 projects in Latin America. We've got projects in Asia, in Europe, Australia, New Zealand. So we're really part of a global movement. And, and part of it is bringing awareness to this, that people understand there are innocent people in prison. They need to think about that when they're jurors. They need to really look closely at the evidence. They need to think about that when they're voting for politicians who talk about nothing but being tough on crime. Our sentences are too long. Our system takes too many shortcuts. And it's all of our criminal justice system. So we all should be a part of making it better. And so I feel a big part of my life and my job is, is being an advocate for people who have no voice. Well, I love that. And thanks for sharing about the, the California 12 and the Innocence Walk. And then one of the reasons I wanted to talk about it on the show, I mean, that's a big undertaking to walk over 700 miles right, you know, through California to to get some attention and really try to to get uh, clemency for these clients. And, and so, you know, Move the Ball is all about taking action. It's not just about having the idea and, you know, or these grandiose goals, but not doing anything about it. And mm-hmm. so it's just a, a great story. And one of the people that... Uh, was walked out of custody was Michael Hanline. Uh, he was in prison for 36 years, the longest wrongful incarceration in California history. I mean, you guys worked on his case for 15 of those years. I mean, stories like that. I mean, every single person that's walked out that's been wrongly incarcerated, I know means so much to you, but I mean, 36 years, that's a long time to be. Yeah, and the amazing there. thing was, <laughs> and there's a great video for it. If you, if your listeners type into Google, man eats hamburger after 36 years, they can see an amazing video that one of my staff members, Mike Samanchik, put together. And it was a very simple thing, us walking him out of prison and taking him to eat lunch at Carl's Jr., which is the one place he said he wanted to eat, that he'd seen their TV commercials. But also in the video, you see his wife and his wife waited 36 years for him to come home. Just astounding, that amount of hope and spirit. It really is astounding. And that day was, yeah, fifth the culmination of 15 years of work. And and there's not too many people in their job that they spend 15 years working on one thing to ultimately see a conclusion occur within a moment of seconds. But that is what this work is. It just, it's over all of a sudden. And was there anything that Michael said to you when he uh, walked out that's kind of stuck with you since that day? Well, I mean, he, he went to prison in the 1970s, and then he comes out to this whole new world. He talked about how the cars look like rocket ships with how fast they were going because he's been in this environment where his sensory – it's basically sensory deprivation where everything's gray and slow. He called me the night he got out of prison, and he said, uh, have, have you ever slept on a posturepedic mattress? <laughs> like sleeping on a cloud. <laughs> Everything is brand new and exciting. But, you know, the, the, the other side of that coin is that everything's brand new and scary. So there were a lot of things that were tough for him and still are tough for him. You know, he, he had a big battle with Social Security because they said, why didn't you sign up for it when you were 65? And he said, because I was in prison. And, you know, the system's not set up for that. 
you know, it's, you have to struggle and get your driver's license back. And, you know, he was, he's a mechanic and he started trying to be a mechanic again, but he said, you got to be a computer engineer to work on cars. Now, you know, he was working on cars in the 1970s and all of a sudden he opens the hood of a car, doesn't even recognize it. So there's a lot of struggles and particularly technology for my clients is the biggest struggle. And I think, you know, that's one of our problems with our prisons is we, we want to punish these guys. So we don't want to give them privileges. So they don't have access to the Internet. They've never used it before. They, they don't know. You know, Mike didn't know how to use an ice machine. I was in a restaurant with him. And I remember that in the 1970s, you didn't get your own sodas. But he goes to get a soda and he doesn't know how to use the ice machine. Just little things like that that are daily struggles for them. So on the one hand, it's amazing and beautiful and wonderful, but it's it's difficult. It's difficult. Sure. I, I can't imagine. I mean, I can try to think what it'd be like, but I mean, none of us can really imagine what that's like to kind of reintegrate back into society and all the new things that have uh, progressed technology-wise and everything else um, for being gone for, for so long. Yeah. I mean, I can't imagine it either. People ask me what it's like. And I say, I've observed this phenomenon for 30 years, but I don't know what it's like. I've never spent a night in jail. Uh, so I don't, I can't be in their heads. I, I see it on their faces, but I've never been in their heads. Right. So before I transition to my, my fun two minute drill, I do want to just uh, close this part about, you know, we, we started talking about the California Innocence Project and how Marilyn Malero inspired you uh, to start this. And so Marilyn was actually incarcerated for, for over two decades. And it was just this year, just in April of 2020, that uh, the governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker, uh, granted Marilyn Malero's clemency petition. I mean, how did that feel? I mean, you worked a long time on her case as well. How did that one feel for you? Oh, I called my wife and I couldn't talk. I just... Even thinking about the moment now that I found out about it, it was, uh, you know, I spent 25 years working on the case. I said, I, I don't even know who I am if I'm not fighting to get Marilyn out of prison. Uh, it was, yeah, it's, I still haven't processed it, to be honest, because I haven't seen her. And because of all this stuff going on, she was released during this COVID crisis. Uh, as soon as I can get on a plane and fly to Chicago and celebrate with her, I'm going to. Yeah, it was such an injustice. And we both grew old <laughs> working on the case. She went in in her early 20s. I was in my late 20s. And uh, yeah, 27 years of her life she lost. And the same detective who set her up has been responsible for more than 50 innocent people going to prison. And each one of those cases is now being investigated and people are being released. It, it only takes one bad egg. I mean, when I was younger, I used to think, you know, there's all these terrible cops, there's all these terrible prosecutors, but you know, I now believe that most people get up every morning and, and try to do their best. But all it takes is a few bad eggs to do, do a lot of damage. And this one police officer in Chicago has set so many people up and put so many innocent people in prison. And Marilyn was one of them. So I don't know fully how I feel yet, but I've never had level of emotion about a case as I did when, when I heard the news that she was going home. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that, that's got to be just a tremendous feeling when you've spent so many years working with this was she was the inspiration why you started on this journey, right? The first case. Mm -hmm. So to see her, uh, to see her uh, be free is and I know you haven't seen her yet in person, but just to know that she's out has been been great. And even in the Brian Banks movie, you know, you 
there's a scene that talks about this case and how she's your longstanding uh, client that you're working to set set free. So I was excited to learn about her freedom as well, even though I didn't never met her, obviously didn't know anything except for what I'd seen and, and read on the internet. But it, I can just imagine just how incredible of a feeling it's going to be for you when you do get to see her and uh, and see her free. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait. Share with us, how can people learn more about the California Innocence Project? What uh, shares us the website? How can they just keep apprised of all the great things that you're doing? Sure. So our website is californiainnocenceproject.org. You can go there and see about all our cases, about causes of wrongful conviction. You can buy cool T-shirts with Exonerate on it, which is our logo. Uh, You also can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I, I use the handle Justin O. Brooks, Justino Brooks. And every day you can hear my musings about the criminal justice system. I've got a lot to say about it and uh, I don't hold back. So, yeah, there's a lot of information. We've got a YouTube channel. Uh, you've done your research, which I love hearing. And so you've found a lot of that stuff out there. Yes, I'm a lawyer. So of course, I'm going to do my research, right? Hopefully, that's what good lawyers should do. So I mean, I've I told you the first time we talked, I mean, I've been someone who's followed different innocence projects. I mean, even before I went to law school. And so I just think what you're doing and the other innocence projects out there are doing is just uh, is just fantastic, because there are people that don't have a voice that don't have resources that really need people to help them to move the ball and, and get them uh exonerated from being wrongly uh, incarcerated. Absolutely. So what I want to do now is I want to switch to my two minute drill, just seven fun questions. Let us get to know more about who Justin is outside of Justin, the lawyer. Okay. Are you ready? I think so. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Uh, What is your favorite food? I can never resist a delicious hot pretzel. Okay. Do you make your own? Uh, well, that's all you can really get in California is these frozen ones in the supermarket. I miss Philly and East Coast pretzels and bagels as well. They're not as good out here. Oh, yes. I Having uh, lived out in California as well, spent many much time in Philly and on the East Coast, I would completely agree with that. <laughs> um, how about what is your favorite movie? Uh, you know, my favorite movie relevant to my work that I talk about probably the most is is the Shawshank Redemption. I think it's mm-hmm. it's it's the only movie besides obviously the Brian Banks movie <laughs> that I feel really gives a realistic portrayal of of what people go through in prison and what happens when they get out. Gotcha. Okay. How about what is your favorite uh, sports team? The Mighty Temple Owls. There you go. Yes, we <laughs> were just it. talking about them earlier. Uh, the Temple undergrad. I've been a long suffering fan of uh, the losses and the, the, well, the good days as well. I absolutely love Temple basketball, Temple football, all things Temple. Okay, great. Now, how about what's the best piece of advice that you've gotten from a coach or a mentor in your career? You know, my, my mentor, uh, Rick Rowe at Georgetown, really helped me to start thinking critically about the criminal justice system and how to, you know, and write scholarship about it, which I've done. I've written the only textbook on wrongful convictions. And he said, it's not scholarship unless it's a legitimate question. And I think about that all the time, that we we have to have legitimate questions to explore that can have potentially two answers to really be critical thinkers. 
but I, I've had so many inspiring people in my life. I, I, I had a, a supervisor at legal services, this woman named Paula Scott, that just really inspired me that my job is to help people. And uh, yeah, but that's the best, at least single piece of advice that comes to mind. Okay. And let's flip it now. And what is the best piece of advice that you would give someone? You know, at the end of every class that I teach with, with my students, I always say, you know, it's a long life. Don't go and do a job where you're looking at the clock nine to five, the same way you were in high school. Find something you're passionate about and do it for the rest of your life because, you know, you have choices and don't just take the easy way out. If you don't love it, don't do it. That's a great piece of advice. I, I, I love that. Yeah, I, I talk all the time about how you should follow your passion and, and pursue a career that it is around that versus just taking a job because you can get a paycheck and you make a ton of money. Uh, I know a lot of lawyers that uh, make a lot of money and they're very miserable. And Absolutely. so, it, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. So definitely follow your passion and pursue a career that involves that. And then it doesn't feel like work either. Yep. All right. So how about the next question is, what is one thing that most people don't know about you? I just turned around and looked at my wife who's sitting behind me. <laughs> uh, most people most people don't know anything about me. But <laughs> even of people who know me well, most people don't know that I spent my formative years living in Puerto Rico in high school. Uh, most people don't know that I have... Really, I'm looking forward to returning to my initial career as a musician. I was a street musician in London for a year, and I love being a musician. I don't know. People know a lot about me. I'm 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 too much on social media. My wife would say everybody knows way too much about me. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. And then uh, the last question: If you could be any superhero, who would you be, and why? Oh, I would be. Well. I mean, I, I kind of consider Bruce Springsteen a superhero, <laughs> so I'm going to go with Bruce Springsteen. Okay, that works. Well, well, Justin, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a true honor having you on, and you are just doing some amazing work. You truly do know how to move the ball, so I appreciate you being with us today. Absolutely a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thanks again to everyone for listening, and we will talk to you on the next episode. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And until next time, make sure that you suit up, you show up, and you move the ball. Thank you for listening to Move the Ball. To see more about what I'm up to and how I can help you to move the ball, check out my website at www.jenniferagarrett.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast so that you never miss an episode. And also join the Move the Ball Facebook group for even more content and to be a part of the Move the Ball movement.